Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. In this episode, we're joined by legendary musicians Buddy Green and Odessa Settles. As they tell their stories, they explore the ways in which we grow in our understanding of the world, of each other, and of God when music allows us to see the world through someone else's eyes. After all, none of us can see the whole picture alone, and the arts are a vital way in which we discover a fuller view of everything around us. Well, I'm uh, Buddy Green. This is Odessa Settles. And um, we're friends for a dozen years or more. Um, And still learning each other's story (laughs) and helping each other along the way. Um, And uh, so I'm trying to remember a a little bit about what our... um, our topic says there, but would somebody have our, would somebody just read, read that out for me, because I love the way it's worded. We help each other see. And, and what's the, the subtext there? It says, through music and story, musicians Buddy Green and Odessa Suttles explore ways in which we grow in our understanding of the world, of each other, and of God, when music and stories allow us to see the world through the eyes of others. None of us can see the whole picture alone. And the arts are a vital way in which we discover a fuller view of everything around us. Yeah. Oh, so that's what we're doing. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like I said last night, uh, I missed the memo. <laughs> no, we, we actually, um, we got together with Pete and Jennifer uh, Peterson the other night uh, a couple weeks ago at my house and just sat around and talked a little bit about this and um, and mainly because uh, excuse me let me disengage this uh, but mainly because uh, I'm a I'm an entertainer and uh, I was talking to Paul Aldrich about this last night I've, I've uh, managed to make it through life shooting from the hip and uh, and not being very prepared for anything uh, other than coming up with a song list, put that in front of me, and then to see what happens. And generally, by about the third or fourth song, I've, I've headed off down in another direction. And that's probably what's going to happen this morning. But I, but the, the ethos of what he just read um, is, is really what we want to pursue a little bit, and it's sort of an open conversation between Odessa and myself about um, how songs and art have helped us um, understand our world better, understand each other better, and and then be um, just a little better equipped for the journey of of uh, self discovery, of understanding the world as it is, understanding the gospel, um, and just seeing how it all you know works together and how we can do this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's sing a song and then we'll get started. Do your song. Are you in tune? 
Okay, and you can all join in. It's a it's a uh, spiritual that was repurposed for the civil rights uh, called um, "Guide My Feet While I Run This Race." It repeats, "Guide My Feet While I Run This Race." Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race, for I don't want to run this race in vain. So that's it. So you already know it. <laughs>
So uh, I, I'm going to give you a little of my background, and then Odessa's going to do the same. Um, I was born in Macon, Georgia, um, uh, back in the uh, mid-50s, and uh, grew up, you know, during the, uh, my formative years, I feel like they started about early 60s, and then on the, going to school, high school, during the uh, a really turbulent time when, you know, the country was divided over the uh, Vietnam War, over segregation and civil rights, and um, uh, and then the whole sort of counterculture, hip, hippie movement, Woodstock, all this stuff was happening. Um, assassinations, uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, um, among others, and... Um, and so I, I just remember that by the time I was in high school, uh, I really, I mean, there were other things too going on in my, in my personal life, but there was, I just really felt sort of um, uh, alienated from the world that I had grown up in, or at least my parents' world, let me put it that way. And I was ready to run away from it. I was ready to rebel. And everything that they stood for, uh, you know, whether that was church or the the authority or, or uh, you know any of those things, it was like, you know, I was I was excited about the youth movement and all the um, and, and and I just didn't, you know, I, I like any kid, I was ready to be out from underneath my parents' thumbs. You know, I thought I could figure things out. I went off to, you remember that? <laughs> so I went off to college and, uh, and then really started sowing my wild oats. And by the mid, my mid-20s, um, I, I, the wheels were really falling off in my life. And, um, and there began uh, this long, slow journey back into uh, the church which I had sort of left during high school. And um, there was a, and it was such a great, uh, it was such a great sort of liberation for me because I really felt by this time uh, bound by my, all the bad patterns in my life. You know, there was drug use, there was, uh, you know, just sexual promiscuity. There was all these things that were making my life sort of miserable. And, um, and, and the fallout was not only hurting me, but other people. And um, so the guilt was just piling up. And by the time I came, you know, to Christ, it was, I was so um, convinced of, uh, of, the, of the need and power of grace. I mean, I needed it so desperately in my, in my life. And, I, and, um, and then... About that, it was during that time that I met my wife, Vicki, who's with us today, right there in the back of the room. And, um, and we became, we were sort of on a similar journey together. Um, her faith was being rekindled as well. And then we got married and moved to Nashville and started going to church for the first time. And, and then I spent probably the next 10 or 15 years just trying to be a good churchman. And... Um, that was very dissatisfying. Um, uh, personally and artistically, um, but I, I remember by the mid-90s just feeling like, you know, um, I am, 
I am I have left a lot behind that I really wish that I could go back and reinvest in. You know, like music that doesn't necessarily have to do with Jesus uh, or sing about him overtly. Because um, I'd been, you know, my musical formation had been bluegrass and blues and, you know, Almond Brothers and uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and, you know, James Taylor and, you know, all this stuff. And it, I liked it. It was good. It was like, you know, that's not the devil's music. You know, it's like, it's just good music. And so... I started this journey uh, sort of out of this uh, evangelical box I'd put myself in. And, um, and I'd say maybe by the early 2000s, um, I was starting to maybe think for myself as a, an adult Christian for the first time, really trying to, trying to not um, uh, be bound to uh, a particular systematic or a particular tradition or anything. I really just want to see, can the Bible just speak uh, to me? And, um, um, and then can I just operate in this world as a, a human being who's being sort of set free by this gospel to not be a churchman so much as to be a, a human and relate to whoever I'm, I'm in the room with? And that's been a fantastic journey, and so much better than the 15 or 20 years uh, of putting, keeping myself in that a box. And, I, and, and there's a whole psychological uh, reason, I think, for, for me wanting to do that, and, but we don't have time for it today. But still, that just kind of brings you up to speed um, on, on where I am um, personally. Along the way, I met Odessa about... Uh, I guess we met maybe 13, 14 years ago. We were part of a, an evening at the Skirmahorn. Um, and you, uh, Odessa's, uh, among other things, is, has a sort of a family group called the Settles Connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her couple of brothers and sisters-in-law, and uh, at the time, Todd Settles, <laughs> not Settles, but Settles, uh-huh. was also in that band, and they were uh, amazing. I remember that night just hearing you guys sing, and, uh, and then finding out that, that their father uh, had been one of the members of the Fairfield Four, which if you're not familiar with, Odessa can tell you a little bit more about them, but that they were, um, they've been around... I'm going to let you explain what they okay. are. What t- oh, go ahead. Oh, you can tell my life. I'm <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'm just bringing it up to where we meet. I'm, I'm, yeah. not, I'm and, not a big speaker, so uh, I, uh, I always appreciate that. <laughs> well, I mean, when I found out, I think y'all even did a song that night from the Fairfield oh, yeah, Ford right, repertoire. Did. You did dig, dig a little deeper, dig a little deeper in the well, mm-hmm. and, I, and, yeah. uh, and I just thought, I, I remember saying to you something like, gosh, that was so great. It was, remind me of the Fairfield Four. And you said, well, my daddy was in the Fairfield Four. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let me yeah. just hand off to you now. Yeah. You tell us and, a little bit and, about And your... while you're on that subject, I'll just say, and I'll backtrack in a few minutes, but the Fairfield Four is one of the oldest a cappella groups in the country. Mm-hmm. They uh, started out in the, uh, the 1920s there in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, at the Fairfield Baptist Church, you know, that's still in existence. And and they are still in existence, I guess, if you follow them. Um, my father was with them for about 10 years of his life, but um, 
as long as I can remember, you know, music was part of our family because my father was a singer and they would rehearse in our homes. So he did those Jubilee songs at, you know, initially with his groups had guitars, you know, mm-hmm. at that particular time. But the Fairfield Four was a cappella and they remained so. And I love that, you know, about them too. So I've road managed them sometimes. <laughs> Riding around with a bunch of old guys is pretty funny. <laughs> Very challenging. But, <laughs> and, and Buddy is younger than me, so by the time that he was born, I had been out in the world for quite a while. But I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up during segregation, so that was an interesting time for me and my family and friends. Uh, we were, this was a period where the risk for victimization was pretty high. Fortunately for us, in our neighborhood, we had it takes a village type of attitude. So all the parents were parents to everybody. So Miss Irene, I like, uh, you know, she, she was one of the, the, the mothers in the neighborhood who, uh, where all the children gathered. Why? Because she was a baseball player. (laughs) And so we would play baseball in her backyard, and she would break out as many windows in her house. So that was pretty cool. But all the parents, but, you know, even though they played with us like that, if we did anything wrong, every parent in the neighborhood could talk to our parents, and they would believe them. So... (laughs) So it was a nurturing, it was a nurturing community that we, we, we grew up in, but it was segregated. So we felt comfortable within our neighborhoods, but if we ventured outside of it, it was very dangerous for us. So our parents had to teach us how to be outside of that neighborhood. So that's where, that's where I grew up, you know. So I started asking, as I got older, I started asking my father, why can't we go to this place? Why can't we, or what are these signs? Why are there signs that say colors and whites, you know? So that's what I had to deal with when I was growing up. So socially, what I had to also do is try to decide what type of person I was going to be. My father's mother, who was born in 1893, my grandmother, was a minister. I love that. Why? Because she's, here's this woman who was born in 1893, and she's a minister in an apostolic church, right? So they accepted women as ministers. My grandmother, my father's mother, was the product of a rape by a white man as was her mother, was the product of a rape by a white man. So watching my grandmother grow up and singing those songs of love lifted me, you know, I would be up with her. (laughs) She's got a hand up back there. When my father was working and couldn't find work here in Nashville, then he would have to travel to the northern cities to get work. So my brothers and I would have to stay with my grandmother during that particular time. My mother would sometimes travel to where he was. 
And I have always been a night owl ever since I was born. So I grew up, uh, as I was there with my grandmother at times, she would be up all night cooking, you know, on a wood-burning stove we had in her kitchen. And she would be singing these songs, you know, Love Lifted Me, like, it wasn't until I was much older that I kind of realized where that was coming from for her. Right? So in spite of what she went through, she was a strong woman. And that's where I came from. Yes. You know? Yes. So I wondered, I was talking to Sarah last night, you know, Sarah Groves, and it was the first time I met Sarah, but I've been knowing of her forever, right? And, and the song that I chose to sing, um, I didn't even know Sarah was going to be here. <laughs> really? So, I, and I was like, when I found out, I said, really? You know, so, in that sense, I'm glad I missed the memo. <laughs> I got the memo wrong. I'm a very literal person, so if you tell me you're going to do a cover song that deals with the struggles and, and, and you know, that you've had in life, I said, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to do Sarah Groves. Because <laughs> that's my song. And I sing that song about three times, at least three times a week. Every time I pick up my instrument, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, but anyway... So listening to my grandmother growing up, and, and I told Sarah, I said, you know, I've always had a really strong constitution about myself, uh, even with all the things that I've dealt with. And I really think, and now that I'm talking right now, I think that came from my grandmother, you know, first, you know. But anyway, my brothers, we grew up in that, that house. My father introduced us to music as when we were children. They would have rehearsals in the home. So then I learned that the songs that, uh, that he was singing and how they were connected to us in our past because these were songs that were created out of a harsh and troubled times as well during the institution of slavery, right? A time when our race became a stigma in the United States, and it still is in so many ways. And that's what we deal with all the time, right? So fortunately, my grandmother introduced us to church, and then I eventually started going to my mama's church, which was a, a sanctified <laughs> Pentecostal type of church. I eventually left that particular church because I thought it was too strict in how it viewed the world and how it viewed people outside the church. Because any form of, of uh, what's the inequality, uh, what's the segregation or um, yes. any form of that, it's like it just goes against my grain because mm -hmm. I don't believe that that's what God intended. Yep. So, um, so I left that church after we buried my mom. My mom died pretty early in her life. She had eight children. So I had seven brothers. They kept trying. They kept trying for a girl. And then finally they said, I'm in the middle. So they tried four more times. And they said, oh, well, we better stop. <laughs> so I had seven brothers. And so we all grew up in this music household where my father uh, instilled the joy of music to us. 
you know, and we learned those Jubilee songs by listening to them and learned the harmonies that they did, the close harmonies, and what it meant to, like, work with each other. And so, and I would still continue to, to uh, uh, ask my father questions, and I'm thankful for that because he allowed me to ask any question that I wanted to ask, so he gave me a voice. And he always told me to don't ever settle, you know, and to always do the best that you can and be the best person that you can. So fortunately, my grandmother taught us, God is love. I don't need to know who beget whom. You understand that? I don't need to know that. All I needed to know was that God is love. That was enough. It's the most simple thing for everybody to learn. For anybody who can't read or who can't speak or who can't, you know, even children who don't have a voice or don't have the understanding or cognizance that you need to be able to make it in the world, they understand love, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I decided that that's going to be what I want to do is to love everybody as much as I can, regardless of who you are and where you came from. So that's me. <laughs> Let's do a song. Okay. Uh, uh, you mentioned those spirituals, and I think we did, uh, I was in one of the groups the other night, when we, we were in the round, we did this one. Okay. Um, now we were talking earlier about this uh, group called the Sea Island Singers mm-hmm. and I think yeah. that's where, our, where this song comes from oh great well, my lord is a rock in a weary land weary land weary land my lord is a rock in a weary land Shelving the time of the storm We'll stop and let me tell you about Chapter 1 When the long God's work had just begun We'll stop and let me tell you about Chapter 2 When the long God preached that Bible through Well now stop and let me tell you about Chapter 3 when the Lord God had died upon Calvary Oh, my Lord is a rock in a weary land Weary land, weary land Oh, my Lord is a rock in a weary land Shelter in the time of the storm Well, now stop and let me tell you about it Chapter 4 of the long God visited among the poor will stop and let me tell you about Chapter 5 of the long God he raised up on the dead alive Well stop and let me tell you about Chapter 6 of when he went into Jerusalem and killed the sick Well my Lord is a rock and a weary land Weary Rock in a weary land, shelter in the time of the storm. 
well now stop and let me tell you about chapter seven of when he died and he risen and he went up to heaven well stop and let me tell you about chapter eight or when the lord god he stood at that golden gate well now stop and let me tell you about chapter nine or when the lord god he turned all that water to wine oh my lord is a rock shelter in the time of the storm he's my shelter in the time of the storm okay let's see I'm gonna I'm gonna um, just read some things from time to time to maybe just give you something to think about. It may, I mean, if there's any commentary, <laughs> may just need to just land out there. This is from Thomas Merton. Uh, I love this. Uh, I read it in a, uh, an Anne Lamott book. She was quoting him and said, the one truth that would help us begin to solve our ethical and political problems is that we are all more or less wrong. <laughs> that we are all at fault, all limited and obstructed by our mixed motives, our self-deceptions, our greed, our self-righteousness, and our tendency to aggression and hypocrisy. <laughs> what do you really mean, Thomas? <laughs> I love that, though. I mean, it's, it's a, that's kind of a good place to start. Um, when you think you might have something to contribute to the conversation is that I am very limited in what I'm bringing to this. And I probably need to listen more than I need to speak, all those things. This is something I've been learning my whole life because, I mean, if anybody knows how to launch into something half-cocked, it's me. And I, and I have suffered the consequences and hurt feelings and all sorts of things along the way. But I, I, I have really enjoyed um, learning to listen a little more and... Um, especially from uh, uh, from people who have different backgrounds than my own. You know, just hearing Odessa's story, you know, I didn't grow up, that's not my story at all, uh, not societally anyway. My story is that, you know, um, being a part of the, of the white uh, dominant culture, um, my interactions with, with a black person were going to be with the housekeeper that came mm -hmm. three times a week, whom I grew to love. I mean, she worked for us for 20, 25 years. And we were not wealthy. I mean, we were middle-class people. This was a common thing in the Deep South. And if a black lady was gonna have a job, that was about it. I mean, about, I think 80% of the black women, I read the statistic from make, in a book about uh, uh, race relations in Macon, Georgia, 
that back in that era, 80% of, of black women who worked were, were in um, uh, domestic jobs. And I would say, uh, I'm not sure what the statistic was, but if you were a black man, you probably were, there was a ceiling there too. There were certainly professionals and things like this among the black community, but for the most part, the jobs offerings were black, you know, some sort of labor. You, you were gonna be doing some sort of hard labor um, in construction work or, or things like that. And um, so I, I remember, uh, you know, by the time I started being able to think for myself a little bit in high school and all, I'd start looking around and of course at the same time, you're watching the news, you're seeing riots break out around the country over this injustice that's going on. Uh, you know, words like Selma and Montgomery and all are, those are the focal points. And I'm realizing, hey man, that's, that's where I'm from. You know, the, what, the, the hot points are all down here in the deep south. And, uh, and then I'm just very much aware from the talk around among the white people in my world that there's a prejudice that's just very much entrenched. Um, and uh, it, it, it bugged me for so many reasons. For one thing, the injustice of it was obvious, but probably the, the thing that really got me was my own complicity in it, you know, because I was a benef the, the beneficiary of an unjust system, you know, educationally, um, um, economically, all sorts of ways. So when I sing a song like Rock in a Weary Land, mm -hmm. you know, that was a spiritual. Now, you, if, if you're Odessa's grandmother singing that song, mm -hmm. you know why it's a weary land. Mm -hmm. And it's not a weary land because you had so much homework piled on you this week. You know, it's, it's because you got raped this week or you saw injustice done to your children again this week, this, this sort of thing. I remember uh, us having a discussion one time with your sister-in-law, Sarah, uh -huh. and uh, we were talking about uh, Sarah and, and uh, Calvin, uh, Odessa's brother, our great folks and we uh, we were in a small group and talking about race relations in America and uh, and their son Calvin Jr. going to a um, predominantly white and and um, sort of upper class school here in Nashville and and would and would run into all sorts of uh, and he would come home on certain days where he would have heard something or been somebody had said something unsensitive or just out and out racist or whatever, and he would come home disturbed, mad, angry about this sort of thing. And I said, well, what do you tell him, Sarah, when, when he comes home with an experience like that? And she says, I tell him he needs to go to church. <laughs> I mean, hallelujah, that is fantastic. Because, I mean, for one thing, it let me know that their church experience is, is what was reinforced in the fact that this is not the way the world should be. Yeah. This is not this is not the way God wants his people to behave. It's not the way he wants them to, he doesn't want them to accept a world like that, all that. And I was just like, that's fantastic. You know, I think um, 
the, the, the songs that, that have really helped me uh, understand where somebody like Odessa's coming from, or, or Calvin and, or Sarah, are songs like Rockin' a Weary Land, or songs like I was listening last night to uh, Sam Cooke's song, I was born by the river in a little tent. Yeah. Just like that river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, long time coming, but a change is going to come. I mean, wow. Yeah. Um, this my, w- my dad, would, you know, one of his uh, the favorites that I got from him, too, is, is I've had trials and tribulations. You know, I've mentioned that last night, but it's... I've had trials and tribulation. I've been buked and I've been scorned. Soon my troubles will be over and I have somewhere to lay my head. Somewhere to lay my head. Somewhere to lay my head. Mm. Mm. So I'm thinking about what you said, and, and uh, there's this uh, one of the verses in one of my songs that I wrote. is two young ones living worlds apart, brought together by a common heart. Growing up too quick, too soon, for reasons not of their own. One needing nothing, the other everything. But both are touched by someone else's greed. Lost innocence never to regain makes a life filled with shame, a life filled with pain. And our children will pay for our sins. And the world will surely suffer as the sweetness begins to fade away. That's two of us. Mm. So... Even though people who are well-to-do, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to fare any better than those who are not. We're both touched by the greed, by the hatred, by the, the prejudiceness, by the racism. We're all touched by that, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all broken, as Merton says. As Merton would say, but also as Bob Dylan would say. (laughs) 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 Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads and broken springs, broken octaves, broken heads. People sleeping in their broken beds. Ain't no use jiving. Ain't no use joking. Oh, everything is broken. Now y'all can make this a community effort by when we get to the last song, the last line of each one of these verses, it just says, everything is broken. Help me on that, okay? Oh, broken bottles. Broken plates, broken switches, and broken gates. Broken dishes, broken parts. The streets are filled with the broken hearts. Oh, broken words, never meant to be spoken. 
one Everything is broken Seems like every time you stop and turn around Something else is just a hit the ground Broken gutters Broken songs Broken buckles Broken laws Broken bodies Broken bones a Broken voices on Broken phones Oh, take a deep breath Feel like you're choking Oh Everything is broken Oh, every time you leave And go someplace Well, please go to pieces In your face Broken hands on Broken plows Broken treaties Broken vows Broken pipes Broken tools People bending all their Broken rules Hound dog howling Bulldog croaking Oh Everything is broken It ain't no use of jiving It ain't no use of joking Oh Everything is broken That's the best song of repentance I've ever lost <laughs> in my life. That's fun. It is fun. Um, so uh, one of the things I was talking to uh, Odessa about before this began um, this morning is uh, about these songs. So many of the spirituals um, had to do with um, liberation. Um, and... You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, that once I I quit trying to you know be a good Presbyterian or good Baptist or whatever, and just started saying, "What is the Bible saying? What is going on in this book?" Mm-hmm. That I started coming across these themes. I mean, for one thing, you realize that that the people of God are always being called to remember. Mm-hmm. They're always being called, and and the. Uh, uh, when it was the Hebrews, it was always like, always, what, are they, what are they always being called to remember? What's the main central event? Exodus. 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 Yeah. And what happens in Exodus is there are, they are what kind of people in, in Egypt? Slaves. They're slaves. And they're being liberated from a tyrannical system, a system of injustice where they are... Where they are um, uh, they have no rights. They're, you know, they are just, uh, and, and they've been, uh, where they've come from has totally been forgotten. You know, this, you know, the fact that they come from Joseph and before him, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, uh, you know, that's all in the past. Uh, that's 400 years away. And here they are um, languishing in, in servitude in Egypt under Pharaohs. And that's what they're delivered from. Um, and that's what God says, remember this. This meal is about that. Mm-hmm. This, these these uh, feasts are about that. I want you to always remember where you came from. And then, so, so it kind of resonates because, you know, at, at various times when he's in, in the scriptures, he'll say, don't forget the alien. You were an alien. Don't forget the slave. You were a slave, you know. These sorts of things keep coming along. He's always calling God's people to remember. And um, so I, 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 um, I remember going to the movie Amistad. 
Did y'all see that movie? Yeah. Do you remember the scenes in there? You know, the uh, it, this is a great movie. Uh, Spielberg was the uh, director. And it's a, based on a true account of a slave ship that had had an insurrection. They, they rebelled, overthrew, you know, you know, they... Um, they killed the slave traders who had them to, uh, the, and threw them overboard, and then they were adrift and then were captured and brought to the colonies, or actually to America by this time. America was a, a nation, and, um, and were jailed and, and, uh, and tried. And during their incarceration, uh, and, I don't, and I don't know how true this was, but it was such a great... Um, it was such a great thing that uh, part of the story and that missionaries were there mm-hmm. and a Bible gets into the hands of, of these incarcerated slaves and it's an illustrated Bible. So there's all these etchings, engravings and things like that. And, and they're looking through and they're seeing pictures of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And they follow. And so there's this scene where, you know, one of the slaves is going, why are you looking at that book? And he says, because I'm, this, you know, because there's this story in here. And he's following just through these illustrations. And he sees the main gist of this story, which is about God liberating people from tyranny, from injustice. And then it, that it all hinges on this one central guy who comes down at, at some point, you know, who who is like nailed to a cross. And then that cross, which is meant to be uh, his humiliation all is actually turned upside down and it humiliates the powers is actually what happens. The powers, uh, so it's like that verse out of Colossians, he made up on the cross, God was making a public spectacle of the powers and principalities. And, and these slaves are getting this. And that was, a, that was a huge part of that movie for me was seeing that. I said, that's a great device mm-hmm. that, that Spielberg has used to show that the slaves... We're getting the message when the Christian people who had enslaved them were actually, who were they acting? Who were they, what part were they playing? Pharaoh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, when there's a, when there's a song like, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, we've done this, this song before. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, if I could, I surely would Stand on the rock where Moses stood Pharaoh's army got drowned Oh, Mary, don't you weep Oh, Mary, don't you weep no more Oh, Mary, don't you weep no more Pharaoh's army got drowned Oh, Mary, don't you weep Well, one of these nights about 12 o'clock This old world is gonna reel and rock Pharaoh's army got drowned Oh, Mary, don't you weep Don't you be no more. Pharaoh's army got drowned in. Oh, Mary, don't you be.
there's like dozen verses to this song. And I love it, though, that it all comes around to Pharaoh's army got drowned. So don't weep. I mean, it's just in a nutshell, then that one line is just reminding the, the people that sang this song as, a, as an enslaved people that don't worry about Pharaoh because he gets his in the end. You know, we know what's going to happen to Pharaoh because it's always happened to Pharaoh. The Pharaohs of history, they go down. And who inherits the earth? The meek. The gentle, the peacemakers. You know, it's like, and so it's just a great, it, it's great that these sorts of songs uh, have been preserved this way because, you know, growing up in the church, that that was not a theme that, that we uh, celebrated sang about why because we had no I mean that the only kind of liberation we needed liberating from was from our scarlet sins <laughs> you know uh, I, I need to quit you know being an adulterer uh, I need to quit being um, you know um, angry all these sorts of things which are, are real things that we need to be liberated from these are the it's the bondage of sin but there was no sense of social injustice in, in my church uh, upbringing because uh, I was not uh, I wasn't feeling any injustice um, so you got anything to add to that about uh, how songs it's you know it's interesting that particular song when uh, when it was created probably it was similar to the one like uh, I got a robe, you got a robe, all God's children got a robe. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my robe, gonna walk all over God's heaven, right? Yeah. But then the refrain of the uh, uh, another part of that song is everybody's talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, <laughs> heaven, gonna walk all over God's heaven. Pharaoh's army got drowned in Oh Mary, Don't Sweet. Those are the kind of songs that had those double meanings. In other words, they thought slaves were simple-minded and their songs were simplistic. They're more simplistic in that because they were uh, illiterate in a sense because they were not allowed to learn to read so these songs became more like a caller that would call out a line and that would be it. But they became pretty clever because I can sing if you are my master, so to speak. I can sing to you this beautiful spiritual that everybody's talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, going to walk all over God's heaven. Something as simple as shoes and a robe and a crown. But everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven. Heaven. Going to walk all over God's heaven. You know. So those songs became, you know, the double meanings of, of planning. And that's how I made this line, I said this line to a buddy, uh, while having church services away from the master's ears, deep in the woods, religion and freedom became one and the same. So that's what this music was about. 
and it's not simplistic. If you look at them, which was over 6,000 spirituals that were created by this group of people who were enslaved, which is one of the largest bodies of work that was created in this country, it will give you a historical account of where they came from, who they were, how they lived, how they felt. You know, so mm. that's what I have to say about it. Um, I have uh, I have really benefited from um, uh, reading some of the uh, works of Eugene Peterson. Any of you read Eugene Peterson? Uh, he died a couple of years ago. Um, I started discovering his work, you know, fifteen or twenty years ago, and his a lot of his books were sort of aimed towards the uh, pastorate. Um, uh, he had really had a burden for people who, for the local pastor, who especially who was out there, not so much leading the the big churches, but out there in the hinterland, leading small churches, and and um, uh, but I love what what he said. I mean, I, I'm just, I just I I just well I just read some some of his stuff here. What the early Christians were claiming was that they had all, at one time or another, met Jesus during the six or seven weeks that followed his death. Sometimes they seemed to have been alone when they did so, but on one occasion, 12 of them saw him together, and on another occasion, about 500 of them. St. Paul says that the majority of them were still alive when he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians in about 55 AD. The resurrection to which they bore witness was, in fact, not the action of rising from the dead, but the state of having risen. A state, as they held, attested by intermittent meetings during a limited period. This termination of the period is important, for as we shall see, there is no possibility of isolating the doctrine of the resurrection from that of the ascension. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has begun. Now, I got to say, for a long time, my, my understanding of salvation was that, um, that God was saving me so I could go to heaven. And um, it took, it's taken a long time for me to get to, a, uh, I think, a better understanding of this. God is saving me to live in this world. It's to be, not only for me to live uh, for me, but to sort of be God's agent in this world. Yeah. Uh, an agent of love, an agent of, uh, uh, a person who participates in the demonstration of the kingdom of God to the world around me. Through my community, through my family, through our, you know, church life. When I'm with Odessa, I feel like that's what's going on. <laughs> I feel like we're getting in on this sort of um, demonstration, this experience, this uh, foretaste of, of a new heavens and a new earth where God has put everything right. And because it's already started in your heart, it started in mine, and we want to be a part of that. We don't want to be a part of this limited thing that the world wants to put on you, whether that comes through the church or whether that comes through <laughs> politics. 
Um, you know, I just I have a really hard time seeing myself. The more the more that I get into that understanding of new creation of of the Bible and what it's preaching, I have a harder uh, time understanding myself as as an American, as any sort of political yeah. partisan, mm-hmm. as as any sort of denominational Christian. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. I, I I don't have that identity because I think a bigger identity is is being formed in me. So um, that's kind of what we wanted to celebrate today through, through the songs and through these stories and seeing how songs have helped us do that. Um, we're, are we going to uh, 1115? Yeah. Yeah, about that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, at, in a minute, I want us to um, ha- have a little Q&A time because I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what we've been throwing out there. But let's do a song. Okay. You got one? I have about 7,000. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like having too many clothes. I know. I know. I'm the same way. Let me look at my list here and see. Here. Oh, oh, okay. Um, we were doing this one earlier. This is one you guys can, can jump on. Troubles and trials will soon be over. Troubles and trials will soon be over. Troubles and trials will soon be over. See what my Lord has done. So keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. See what my Lord has done. Many are gone, but not forgotten. See what my Lord has done. So keep your lamp trimmed and a burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Don't oh, my Lord has done. Well, sister, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. And a burden, keep your land trimmed and a burden. See what my Lord has done. Keep your land trimmed and a burden. Keep your land 
trimmed and a burden. Keep your lamp trimmed and a burden. See what my Lord has done. Are there any uh, questions, comments? Yes. Can an afternoon activity be just hanging out with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in all seriousness. Like, there's just so much life and beauty and goodness happening that I'm like, I just want to hang out with them. <laughs> and, and learn these songs and take them back to my students. And uh, yeah. teach them to them and teach them the history connected to it. Yeah. Bring you with me if I could. <laughs> Well, I encourage you to do that. Uh, you know, uh, the songs, um, I think uh, that's, that's really what folk music does. You know, um, any traditions. We've just been talking mainly about African-American traditions here, but, but um, folk music is, is amazing uh, in, what it, in, in the way it gives you a window into the history of yeah. the times and where they came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Where where would you point us to look to mm -hmm. find that folk? You know, I mean, there's recordings of some. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, where do we go to find it if we aren't in Nashville? You know, um, <laughs> there, uh, throughout the 20th century, there was, uh, there was a folk move, movement going on, and you hear names like Pete Seeger mm -hmm. and Woody Guthrie, um, uh, Big Bill Brunzi. Um, I mean, just all these... All these people, and it eventually, you know, led to the great folk scare of the early 1960s, <laughs> where you had people like, where it became actually almost commercial for a minute, uh -huh. you know, with people like the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan. Right, right. Um, but they were basically building on um, folk music that was being brought to the attention of society at large in America through... Uh, in, in many cases, people like Pete Seeger and all who come from these well-educated backgrounds, and they knew that there was great value in this in this music of the common people. But they were, in speaking to the elite world that they were from, they didn't get. Uh, I mean, they they had to convince them because because the prevailing view among that elite was, you know, if it's not classical music, if it's not uh, if it's not highly developed and sophisticated and all this, or if it doesn't come out of a Western tradition, then Really, it's just fun and games. It's children's music or whatever. And they said, no, no, you're missing something great here. And even the great composers had known this. You had people all along, Aaron Copeland and others, who realized folk, I mean, folk melodies alone are incredible. Um, but also the stories, the narratives that come along is this amazing, there's this amazing thing that we need to not lose, um, um, not lose because it, it, it teaches us so much about the world at large. So I would say there was there was a, a father and son, John and, and Alan Lomax, L-O-M-A-X, um, who started, it started back in the 20s, they started going out and doing field recordings of everything from, you know, Piedmont blues to Delta blues to uh, Appalachian, um, Scotch-Irish music to um, Cajun music. I mean, they would just go, they would just, and this was back when they had to take a, you know, some old car in the 20s and with huge 100-pound batteries because they were going out places where there was no power and they would, and they'd have this, you know, early recording equipment and would sit there with a microphone and record, you know, 
um, somebody playing a fiddle tune or, or somebody uh, singing an old Scotch-Irish ballad or something like that. So if you can remember, Alan Lomax, uh, he really championed it and took it further than his father because I think, I think John died in mid-century sometime. Alan... Um, I'm thinking his sister as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of the sister. I have a book on her. But Smithsonian Folkways, spirituals.com. So that would start you yeah. in the search. Library of Congress. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, you know, it kind of started for me. Uh, I was typical in, I listened to the radio. And so all I heard, you know, was, I mean, it started with Elvis and, you know, Pat Boone. And then finally it was, uh, you know, the Beach Boys and the Beatles and all this stuff. And, and then it was Motown. And I'm just, but whatever came through commercial radio, was all, that's, that was my whole musical experience. And I remember two things kind of happened when I was about 18. And one was the Allman Brothers Band came out with a, a live album from Fillmore East. And and then the, I was a huge Allman Brothers fan. I already had their first two or three albums, and then this album came out, and it was just amazing. They're doing all all these great 10, 15-minute jam songs. But when they would start them off, you'd hear Greg go, uh, this is an old, uh, this is an old Elmore James song. Actually, it's a T-Bone Walker song, and I'm going like, who are they talking about? You know, and they're talking about were the formative people of the blues, the people, you know, who had started this blues tradition. And it made me for the first time realize, oh, wait a minute, this this music has origins. It has roots. I don't know anything about it. The other album that did that for me was uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Kind of the same thing for country music roots. Because you had all these people like Doc Watson and... Earl Scruggs and Mother Maybell Carter and all these people who were bringing this stuff. I mean, all I knew was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Mr. Bojangles out there on the radio. But I buy this album and I started listening to this. these people who were, uh, who were attached to the roots of this music and all these songs I never heard, like, you know, um, Nine Pound Hammer and, I mean, just on and on. They, you know, they gave me um, songs to consider that I, you know, I never would have heard on commercial radio. But that's kind of what started for me. It made me start going to look. But I can just say, start looking, and in this day and age with the with the internet, oh man, you can just you can just find so many links out there that'll take you on a good journey. So yeah, but to investigate it. Yes, Ruth. Yes, I had a question. Um, thank you, buddy, for sitting at the feet of the culture of the music. You can always hear when someone loves the music but hasn't spent the time studying the history of it and the culture of it. So thank you. That is not true with your singing and your music. It's clear that you have a respect not just for the love of it, but also for the history. I wanted to ask, you know, Dustin, thank you for the history that runs warm in our veins and that we remember and honor them by telling their stories. And that's beautiful. So thank you for your great body of work, for leading the way for uh, my generation and the generation after me in many genres, not just um, folk music, but many genres, certainly even for the genre of jazz. I had a question for you, buddy. Do you struggle or do you allow yourself to sing spirituals um, such as No More Auction Block for Me? 
They sold my last child. Is Massa gonna sell us tomorrow? Where there's or oh freedom, where there's lyrics that are very biographical, very in the sense of before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. I love Pete Seeger, but I can't hear him sing no yeah. more auction block. For me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I agree. No auction block, no more your forever. I've been quite the opposite. So. Um, how do you deal with that, and have you ever struggled with that, where this is such a powerful picture, yeah. um, but do you feel you have the right to sing those kind of songs that really talk to that, really dealing with the actual... Um, I, I don't. I don't think so. Not as uh, certainly not as a solo white performer. I don't think I would try a song like that I, I, uh, to appropriate something like that. But now I would. I would love to find myself in a mixed choir, yeah. <laughs> helping sing those. Because when I sing a song like "Rockin' a Weary Land" or 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 "Lamp Trimmed and Burned" and any of those things, what I'm looking for are songs of solidarity. Right. I, I want to stand with my with my brother, with my sister, um, who has experienced injustice. And, I, and in some ways, it's a part of my own repentance from my own complicity in being a part of a system that has gone way too long um, and that just continues to, to need, we, I mean, we need to continue to take fresh looks at our history, um, why we're like we are. I, I remember reading a quote one time saying, you know, one of the, one of the best evidences of the veracity of Scripture is that it's not, when you read the history of Israel, it is not sugar-coated. What you, you read is a sinful people that are screwing up right and left. They're, they're constantly, uh, through their idolatry, through this and that, they're, they're making wrong moves right and left, and God is constantly bringing them to a better place, to a better understanding of who He is, who they are, who the world is, why they're here, where they're going. That sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I mean, that, that's not the way I was taught American history. I was given a very sugar-coated, uh, one-sided view of, of, of how America <coughs> was formed and how we got to where we are. And I think in the last 20 years, um, it, when, it, when it started being, when people started saying, hey, enough, we're not hearing enough of this picture. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole chapter that we don't deal with very well. Um, I mean, the first cries you heard was, that's revisionist history. Well, no, actually, no, what we've been getting is revisionist history. What we need is a com more complete history. So, and uh, we don't need to be afraid of it. It's actually a very liberating thing uh, to, to get a, a, a clearer and fuller view of, of history and what's actually taking place. Yeah. I wanted to um, offer this thought. We don't have a right to sing it, we have a responsibility. Right. I agree with you. You know, um, you have to remember, and, and thank you for that question too. Um, when those songs were being sung, it was just not African Americans who were singing. They were standing side by side. When you understand that this struggle is not just a black struggle, mm -hmm. it's an American struggle. Yeah. The auction block means something different maybe for everyone, but it exists. It existed. Mm -hmm. 
And so that auction block for me was also that auction block for you as well. You're going to have to understand that. And when we, that's when you can have a conversation about it. You know, Lee asked me that same question. Lee Camp. Lee Camp. Lee Camp is uh, uh, the uh, producer of a show that Buddy and I are on together, The Token Show. And he asked me, he said, what does it feel like to, to be around all of these white people? And, you know, and we sing in these particular songs and whatever, and how do, how do you feel about that? I said, these songs belong to all of us, just like any song that's written. Once it leaves your mouth, once it leaves your whatever, that song is out there for everybody, you know? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it is, because when you understand that, then you can understand that we are all people here together, and we are all dealing with this life and this world together, in this world together. So no more auction block for me, many thousand gone. That's what it says, you know. What do you do with that? You sing it, and you let people know, no more of this. We need to fight against this. Yeah. Oh, freedom, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. You know, <laughs> it's all of us. It's not just me, it's all of us. This fight is for all of us. It was because of us coming together that we have gotten to the point of where we are today. We still have a good distance to go, but that's why we all had to come to the table and bring something to the table and say, we need to fix this. We need to learn to love each other. We need to figure this out. That's what that music is all about. That's why Bob Dylan jumped on it. I know. <laughs> he understood that. That's right. That's right. You know, with Odetta. You know, it's, it's that's that's why. You know, so that's me. <laughs> um, Thank you. I am a different person because of the music that I have heard through the years. I'm a creature of the 70s, one of those hippie people. But I'm also a nurse practitioner, and I was thrilled to hear that you are too. Um, music is what often has changed me, the songs that I hear. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's a little ouch to it, but it gets in. It's like music is the, is the needle that drags the suture to the wound mm -hmm. to do the work mm -hmm. and um, it's no fun but it does get there and a lot of other things skim off the surface and we'll think oh that's a melody that's nice mm -hmm. but nothing happens in here and if something gets in and, and music good music does that it gets inside yeah and it accomplishes something just like God has set it out to do yeah yeah, I think I think I think music, good art, period. Mm -hmm. You know, paintings, film, whatever. What they, I think, the best the best examples of that wakes up longings in all of us. Mm -hmm. Gets us in touch with things that we might be tamping down otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, that, but it needs to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if a, a lot of times it's it's a piece of art that can help you see what you've been blind to before. It wakes you up to something like that. 
or what you've been denying about yourself. And um, art's just so good and powerful for that. And, and, so, and so sometimes it can be a very incomplete narrative. It's not like every song has to try to spell out the whole gospel or, you know, t- tell all of truth in one song. If you can just, like, just get a little, just jar the door open a little bit, it's amazing what can start to happen in a person through a song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're out of time. Yeah. I guess. So what, this is so much. Yeah. I really enjoyed being here with you. Yeah. Today. Thank you guys. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So thank much. y'all.